Hello and welcome to the Kunstler Cast. Thanks for listening. My guest this week is a young man who's already had a pretty distinguished stellar career in sustainable agriculture. Jason Bradford is the author of a new report from the Post Carbon Institute, where he is a fellow and a board member. The report's uh, title is The Future is Rural, Food System Adaptations to the Great Simplification. Jason has a pretty impressive resume. He has a doctorate from Washington University, worked for the Missouri Botanical Garden, was a visiting scholar at UC Davis, co-founded the Andes Biodiversity and Ecosystem Research Group. He trained in sustainable agriculture at Ecology Action, otherwise known as Grow Biointensive, in Willits, California, founded the Brookside School Farm, For four years, he hosted the Reality Report radio show on KZYX Radio in Mendocino County, California, and in 2009, he moved to Corvallis, Oregon, where he farms and lives with his family. I have only one advertiser on this podcast, and that is David McIlvaney's ICA Financial Advisors. I happen to be a big fan of David's weekly financial podcast, and there's a link to it in the show notes. We are living in rather strange financial times, and by now you realize that you need to own physical precious metals in your portfolio, whether in your possession, in an IRA, or stored internationally. It's imperative that you work with a company that advises you on and manages your gold and silver. ICA has been an industry leader since 1972. Your ICA advisor will get you set up correctly from the start and keep you informed about when to make a move, when to add ounces, and even assist you with an exit strategy as the markets change. Call 1-800-525-9556 for a free portfolio review. That's 1-800-525-9556. Or go to icagoldcompany.com to request information. And now on with my conversation with Jason Bradford. We're going to be talking about the American future and the landscape and townscape and and how we are going to make it happen and how it all adds up. It's been a main idea in a lot of my books that we're heading into a kind of epic reset of human activity, which I've referred to really as going local and downscaling our activities. And uh, I like your term even better, the the great simplification. Tell us how you see that. Uh, Tell us what that means to you. You know, this is kind of a term that might be used by economists or anthropologists uh, that are looking at social complexity and that generally as, as economies have access to greater energy supplies, they tend to, you know, expand their their sphere of influence and territory which ends up adding kind of layers of complexity of sort of administration, economic specialization, uh, trade relationships. And you'll see, you see sort of the, you know, the rise and fall of civilizations following energy and resource extraction, depletion, and then sort of a collapse. And by collapse, it usually means that they, they fall back to simpler forms of organization that tend to be more informal or sort of relational via kind of cultural norms and and less having to do with sort of um, law contracts, right, and monetary exchange. Yeah, because you get these massive interdependencies that can no longer be maintained. 
Right, exactly. The term was actually coined by a friend of mine, Nate, Nate Hagens. He started I know using Nate. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I just sort of picked it up from, from him. And, and yeah, I thought it was an interesting turn of phrase. But there are, yeah, there are many ways you can talk about it. Fossil fuels allowed us to become a, a global urban civilization with uh, about a thousand cities over a half a million. And you cited 37 cities over 10 million around the world. And yeah. I believe we're in for a shocking contraction of that way of living. They've attained a scale that really doesn't comport with the resource realities of the future. Yeah, totally. You know, one of the analogies I give sometimes when I'm talking to people is think of like a mega dairy, right? There are these dairies around that are have like 5,000 cows in them. And guess what? As soon as you get to that scale, it takes huge energy to transport the food to the cattle and then to get rid of their waste. The cattle no longer walk to their own food and then walk to the milking barn. So there's a, a huge dependency on far-flung resources for a large dairy, and yet the animals don't really move in and out of the dairy barn. And I kind of think of cities that way, right? There's You can, you yeah. can make them really big if you can transport things in, basically resources, and then transport waste out. But I sort of see us, uh, with less energy available, having to go back more to the scale of smaller towns and cities where uh, waste can be disposed of more passively and things can walk into and out of the city without having to be sourced from these long distances. Yeah, and a lot of the places that people live in the USA really don't have a meaningful relationship with uh, the food production. No, it's true. And, and they, they haven't had to for quite a long time. So it's and, just and been places like Phoenix and Tucson never had to. Right, exactly. You know, Orange County was called that because there was orchards. And <laughs> I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it was uh, the Silicon Valley was once a paradise for fruit trees. But yeah, once again, it, that's been sort of uh, taken over. And those wonderful climates and soils have been, have been buried by urbanization in many places. Well, fossil fuels also made it possible for the human population to overshoot. And just in the space of 200 years from, from the early 1800s, we've gone from 1 billion people in the world to uh, 7 billion plus now. How are we going to feed all these people? And what is the future, especially of industrial agriculture, that is agribiz, the way we grow food these days? What the report gets into is sort of this um, dependency of of industrial agriculture on <clears throat> fossil fuels, almost complete reliance on these from every step, um, and that's kind of frightening, honestly. And um, my kind of hope is that we're wise in how we use remaining stocks of fossil fuels and give ourselves time to transition. And there are plenty of ways to substitute. But none of it happens quickly, right? You, you can't, you know, take diesel away from the industrial food system and have tractors run. There aren't, there aren't ready-to-go uh, flip on a biofuel plant within five miles of every farm. You know, the lucky thing we have going for us is that we're so wasteful right now. We produce way, we produce way more food than we need. There is the capacity to dramatically cut back on the scale of agriculture and still feed people. The problem is, is that um, it's all based upon, you know, if you've got access to money, 
you can eat. And if you if you don't, you're going to starve. And typically what happens then is with minor shocks uh, in supply, a lot of people go hungry. So this also gets into problems of distribution and equity and different levels of, of finance and social support in different nations, which then leads to things like unrest, like the Arab Spring, for example. So it's kind of a dangerous situation, but it doesn't have to be, but we're kind of locked into this you know, financial, industrial, capitalistic model that is really hard to see how it how it adjusts gracefully. Yeah, the, one of the biggest inputs, as they say, to agribiz, to an agribiz-style farm operation after the fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides and all that is borrowed money. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah, I mean, the, the typical farm in, in the United States of America uh, probably has, you know, $8 million uh, of net assets, you know, in terms of land and equipment. And they might have a line of credit that's $3 million a year to operate. So it's it's pretty important that how, how tied they are to the banking system. One of the um, offshoots of the kind of uh, money system that we have been practicing for about the last 30 years, which is the extreme debt manufacturing model, We've been able to produce a lot of oil, especially in the last 10 years, that isn't economical to produce. And it seems to right. me that the majority of Americans have been gaslighted over our oil quandary. And right. surely because of the, the so-called shale oil miracle, which I regard as a kind of impressive financial stunt made possible yeah. by ultra-low interest rate policy, so how do you see the oil and fossil fuel situation evolving over the next several years? I have this sense that because the shale oil revolution, so-called, produced so much oil so quickly that it's apt to come down the other side just as quickly. Yes, it's true. So this cheap credit allowing for major flow of infrastructure development into these shale regions is rapidly depleting these sources that are really, you know, energetically hard to get at and uh, materially hard to use. But, you know, you throw enough stuff at it, you can get some flow out of it. So there's, I think there's two ways this can go. It's hard to see how kind of private finance keeps this going forever, right? Because right. they're going to demand a return. But, you know, one thing that could happen is you could have a nationalization of the energy industry. You could have the, the government basically own this stuff and say, I don't care what the financial repercussions are. As long as we can get the fuel out, let's do it. That may actually let this last longer. The consequences of our continued addiction and environmental you know, waste that happens uh, are poor. But the government doesn't need to have the same level of financial return as private banks typically need. There's a record of nationalized energy enterprises not being very well managed. I mean, Mexico is a fiasco. Venezuela is the most conspicuous fiasco. Yeah. And there are plenty more. Yeah. You know, the, the best managed is probably uh, the Saudis have done an amazing yeah. job with the nationalized oil company. So it, it varies quite a bit. But you're right. You know, you don't know how that's going to go. Yeah. Let's change the subject a little bit. What do you see about the, the conditions of American soils and and just the our ability to keep on using the land the way we've been using it after about a hundred years of agribiz. 
That is a great question, Jim. And that's something that I, I would really like more people to understand. And, you know, a good resource for this, if people want to read books on soils and how to repair them and sort of the history of their damage, uh, David Montgomery, his books are really good. And I, I reference a couple of them in the report and do kind of a, you know, a nice, I think, <laughs> at least relatively concise explanation of soils and how they're treated poorly and how they how they're treated well. You know, there are parts of the US that have been treated so poorly for so long that I think they're going to be abandoned without the excess energy we have now. Where where you know, are part, these places? Well, like a good a good example might be like the Palouse region of Washington, parts of the Columbia River basin that uh, don't have access to, to irrigation. These are kind of rolling hills that have been used uh, for dry farming wheat. And you can you know, find other places out west like this where they alternate between a fallow period where they try to get enough rain into the soil for a year and then they plant. So they alternate like bare fallow soil, get enough moisture there, plant wheat, harvest it, come back. They get low yields, very low uh, financial return. And the, the synthetic fertilizers are driving pH down and that makes it harder and harder to get returns. And they can't afford to put lime on, which would correct the pH problem. There's areas like this that are sort of marginal production areas that would probably be best like a native grassland with some sheep or bison or cattle on it once in a while. Mm -hmm. But instead, we're kind of depleting the carbon stock from the soils, leading to a lot of runoff and dust storms and acidifying them. Um, so that's really sad. And then there's a lot of places that are decent soils, but, you know, we're mining groundwater out of them. So you can think of parts of Arizona, you know, and parts of California and New Mexico, the desert areas where there's water that's 10,000 years old and we're going deeper and deeper to get it. So without really cheap and reliable electricity, what are you going to do? I don't know. There are also places like the Central Valley in California where artificial irrigation for the last uh, 100 years is bringing all these mineral salts up to the surface and destroying the soil. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, some of these groundwater source supplies aren't really that fresh. Exactly. I've also heard the, the idea, I don't know if it's a theory or an established fact, that when the Great Plains in the United States were settled in the late 1800s, uh, I'm thinking especially of uh, the westernmost parts of Nebraska, etc. That was a particularly wet period in American history, and now things have changed. Yeah, it's right. And, you know, in general, that uh, with climate change, the drier areas, areas are generally going to get drier and hotter. And so you have more water deficits. I worry about that. And this is where, you know, I, I kind of look at, at actually livestock systems that are based upon grazing actually can be a really good way to, to rebuild soil. So instead of tilling it, just making it susceptible to water and wind erosion, there might be places still where you can do this sort of low-intensity livestock grazing, but you're not going to support the kind of population or the kind of output per acre that you can by growing uh, annual crops. That gets back to then where do people live in the future if, if the places that they relied on and built up over so much time just can't provide what they what they have historically. So there are many proposals for replacing agribiz, industrial agriculture, with other ways of getting food. And can you tie together the various threads of ideas like permaculture, 
biodynamic farming, silviculture, mm. perennial polyculture, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, sure. You know, there's there's definitely, you know, the hippies got some things right uh, in terms of understanding that the age of oil was going to come to an end sometime and we needed to get, you know, go back to the land a little bit. And some of the more science-oriented folks in those traditions, uh, the counterculture traditions, uh, really had an, uh, an influence on things like organic agriculture, things like the discipline of agroecology. What they all do is they basically say, look, the soil's primary. We've got to protect that. We've got to restore that. We've got to make it healthy. And it's really simple. They all kind of rely on you know, minimizing destruction of soil, health through tillage, and keeping organic matter in and replacing lost minerals through harvest, ideally with, you know, recovered waste products from, say, you know, food waste, let's say, or even people get into then human manure and all that. If you get really local, that's what it takes. You know, every time you export a crop, there's minerals from the soil that leave. And unless you've got some volcano nearby that's depositing ash or a river flooding and bringing minerals back, you're going to deplete that soil. All of these basically understand that process that it's got to be a cyclical. It's got to be, if it's, if you extract, you've got to return as opposed to the industrial model, which is we're going to go mine phosphate in Morocco, put it in a plant in Louisiana, uh, make it super phosphate and then distribute it to our fertilizer companies all across the U S. So that's, what's really interesting. And then the reason people talk about perennial crops or, or permanent crops is because they provide a return year after year without sort of disturbing that soil and replanting from seed. And I think what's important is to get a mix on your very best soils, rotate with annuals in on soils that aren't as, aren't as resilient to tillage, you know, focus on your perennial and permanent crops. Looking at the landscape and the diversity of the landscape and then applying a perspective where you say, this landscape is going to be managed for human use, okay? It's utilitarian need. It's a farm. But we can't do it in ways that undermine the viability of the ecosystem and the soil processes and other species that are there that we depend on. And so that's, that's what all these schools of thought really come down to, I'd say. The title of your book is The Future is Rural, and we've already established the probability that our cities are now way overscaled in relation to what the future will be able to handle. It seems to me that they're going to get into trouble rather quickly. I wonder what if you've given any thought to the difficulties that may be entailed when these cities no longer function very well. You know, the first thing I think about are places like Detroit. You saw the population go from 2 million to 600,000 over a few decades because they essentially lost this industry that was you know, allowing them to, to maintain that whole infrastructure. What I kind of think about is financial distress that hits certain cities uh, and regions more than others that then doesn't allow for the kind of constant repair and maintenance that is needed for the for the cities, for their, their infrastructure, because you don't have as much jobs and income. So you can't import all the material that is needed to keep cities going. And then it becomes a sort of downward spiral, right? You know, yeah. you lose access to 
to one one industry, and then the okay, well then all the associative economy of services have to go down, and then the public schools have to close, and then the ta- you know tax revenue is plummeting, so then roads don't get maintained. That's sort of a process I can imagine happening as sort of financial systems uh, wobble. You know, certain places are going to be less able to keep paying for the energy, and that'll then lead to a decline. In- well, you know, you see that all over the Midwest, and I have been all over the Midwest. Of course, what's happened over the last 50 years is that those cities decanted a lot of their activities to the suburbs. But I wouldn't be very sanguine about the, the future of the suburbs either. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, absolutely right. All right. Well, the idea of perpetual progress has become kind of a religious cult in our in our country. And, you know, sort of understandably, because the wonders and marvels of the past 200 years have been so amazing. You know, everything from steam engines to motion pictures, airplanes, computers, genetic medicine. And all this has convinced the public that we're on a kind of endless arc upward. But meanwhile, we're destroying the planetary ecology. Yeah, no, it's really amazing. And people are grasping at straws that are just so fanciful when you scratch the surface. So I, I, I agree, it's, it borders on religious. You know, one of the things uh, that I kind of make fun of once in a while, an example is you get this, this notion that, well, we'll just mine asteroids or we'll colonize, you know, we'll set a base on the moon and we'll go to Mars. That'll relieve population and resource pressures. You know, it's pretty funny, like the space shuttle at its height, you know, was was uh, you could launch eight people at a time. Yeah. And you think the most people we've sent into space in a year is like, you know, around 60 ever in a year. The current uh, device sending people up to International Space Station can put three people up into space at a time. Yeah. And so, you know, what we're adding 80 million people a year to the population. Yeah. So it's just. You know, you just are just doing simple division, and it just becomes this absurdity. But I guess there's some assumption that if if we want it so, we can somehow make it happen, and it's just it's nuts. So I try to get people to think, be literate in in some some simple principles of physics and chemistry and biology, and then you know just remember grammar school math, and you can probably burst a lot of, of techno-fantasies really quickly. Well, you know, the tragedy of all this is that so much of this delusional thinking is actually coming from the sustainable community itself. In, in fact, coming from people with a science background. Uh, it seems to me there are kind of two big delusional themes out there at work. One is what I call organizational grandiosity, the idea that if we can just make enough lists and start enough organizations and and ring enough doorbells that we're going to get, you know, that we're going to solve these problems. And the other one is what I call techno-narcissism, which is a kind of excessive faith that uh, uh, there are all these technological rescue remedies that will allow us to continue living the way we're living now. I just don't see that at all. I laugh so I don't cry. And you're right. It's some of the biggest, most prestigious institutions on the planet will send out these press releases because somebody in one of their energy labs did some fun reaction. But then you just go, okay, nice. That might help in a garage or on a, in a village, but none of it scales. And once you start again doing the math, it's very simple to show how none of these scale well. And and they haven't really thought through the systemic issues. You know, a good example is for like um, 
and, and some people are calling this out a little bit. The Climate Change Committee, for example, a lot of what they've been pushed to do is find technical solutions like negative emissions technologies, like creating artificial rock where you you turn like magnesium silicates into magnesium carbonates, which is natural weathering does this. But we want to somehow accelerate it. And we've got to do it to such an extent that it's like, you know, building hundreds of three gorges dam every year with no economic purpose. It's fanciful. And it's it's easy to do on spreadsheets and produce a nice graph. Um, but then there's this sort of waving a magic wand saying, we will figure this out. And it's it's sad. And I just wish people would face some reality because if we do face reality, we can ease the pain and maybe create something that's not so horrible and maybe maybe tie ourselves back to nature and the land and the community a little bit better. And and that may that may relieve actually some of the people's stresses they've got in terms of loneliness and and, and lack of purpose in life. We're like in this cargo cult of a culture that just thinks it can um, pretend to, to call forth the gods of technology. It's absurd. Exactly. Um, and, and it also seems to me that when these delusions fail to produce the desired effect, that uh, the result will be very traumatic and demoralizing to the population and maybe dangerously so. Right. I know. I know. And that's sort of why you know, I put this report out is that I'm trying to get more and more people aware of this and to talk about this and think through realistically what what should we be thinking about and doing right now? We should be thinking about how to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels in a responsible manner that holds social norms together, that shifts social norms so that we're not destroying the planet and being this incredibly wasteful consumer culture. And we're not having that conversation yet. Well, your great simplification has a lot in common with the outcome that I depicted in my World Made by Hand novels. But the catch is, uh, in both of these scenarios, that it's liable to be a very disorderly journey from where we are now to the new disposition of things. And I wonder how much you've been thinking about that. Oh, a little bit. Uh, It's very hard to do, isn't it? I mean, that's where I think your speculative fiction is so interesting and and useful because it forces us to think through these social implications. I'm at this point right now where I'm I'm interested in exploring the unraveling from, you know, historic perspectives. So I'm wondering like, okay, well, right now Venezuela is struggling. Right now, you know, well Greece went through a problem where people had to leave Athens because they didn't have jobs and they went back to help with the the goat milking and the olive harvest. You know, and historically, there were definitely times during war periods or economic depression where tremendous demographic shifts and economic shifts had to occur that were, you know, somewhat analogous to what we're talking about. Yes. And and so we it would be great to have historians and economists that are interested in things like the informal economy, you know, microeconomics and village life. Look at this shift that has happened in the past. And then start telling stories that help us navigate this, you know, psychologically and culturally and institutionally. And I don't see that happening yet, but I think your speculative fiction and maybe reports like this, you put them together, it can get it can get some people interested, you know. Yeah, well, we, we can hope. 
Um, <laughs> do you anticipate any changes in social relations due to this great simplification? In the world made by hand novels, I depicted a, what is probably a tendency to neo-feudalism. Right. With the more successful farmers becoming the community leaders and, and the truly wealthiest people left in the society. I must add, though, you know, an interesting part of it was that I got a lot of really angry reader mail from women who were appalled that the feminist revolution had come to a conclusion and was over. Right. I marveled at the poverty of imagination that that represented, that they were absolutely unable to consider the idea that when economic relations are turned upside down, social relations would apt to be turned upside down too. Yeah. And I'm not trying to twang on women per se, but uh, just to point out that a lot of our ideas about these things are very unrealistic. How do you see it? That's a really good point. And I think, you know, um, it's, it's hard to know how cultures are going to evolve and cultures are extremely diverse. But what ends up happening typically is you've got what's called um, leadership becomes situational. So somebody's going to be really good at something. And this is sort of villages, hunter-gatherers, pastoralist societies. Often there's rotating leadership based upon what's going on at the time. And in some societies, you you have um, definitely more patriarchal systems. In some societies, it's it's less so. But in general, though, you know, the, the means of subsistence has a tremendous impact on social relationships and the roles that people play. And some of these roles, generally the roles get broadened so that the more simple the society in anthropological terms, the more people have to take on kind of a diversity of tasks and skill sets. And then there's situational specialization. You know, one of the key points, though, is that Right now, we can feel that we are, are we are independent. If we are financially well enough off, we can be, quote-unquote, independent. What I see happening is, is people realizing how completely codependent humans are with one another. We're actually not a very tough animal as an individual. We are only strong in groups. So part of what I think we need to think about is how do we have social norms and relationships where people appreciate their interdependence on one another and on sort of their in local environment, which is providing them food and shelter and other goods and services? The whole wealth question is very uh, troubling because, as you point out in the report, uh, so much of what we consider to be wealth is represented by money. Uh, which is an abstract representation of real things, land, resources, real goods. And, and then, of course, when you pile on an additional layer of even more abstract, janky derivatives of money, like securitized debt, uh, right. you know, you're really getting further and further away from what wealth really is. Yeah, and almost no one understands it anymore. Right. It's become uh, hopelessly mystifying and complex. So mystifying that the people who were generating collateralized debt obligations in 2007 didn't even know what they were selling in some cases. Right. Whatever how, makes me money right now. <laughs> yeah. Where, where does that go? I think a lot of it's just going to disappear. The financial system will have these like painful resets 
And the financial services industry is going to dramatically have to shrink because they don't really, you know, of course, financial services can be a useful thing. Money is an amazing, amazing invention. Yeah. But it became this monstrosity that is now parasitic on society. Mm-hmm. And that that is going to have to go away. There will not there will not be the surplus that enables them to just keep churning out financial products that uh, are not helpful to people. Yeah. Well, there's also the question of the basic thing that holds up the value of these abstract representations of wealth, that is money. And that is sheer faith, the sheer faith that the money has value, that what it affects to represent is actually uh, accurate and correct. Yeah. I mean, think of it. I think of this as a game of giant musical chairs. Okay. What the money system requires is that is that it, the music's playing and people believe that chairs are being added so that there's they're grow, you're growing you're growing your dance hall <laughs> and um, <laughs> when you have debt and interest and you're paying back principal and interest there's got to be more money created in the future than was created in the past in order to pay back both principal and interest what's happening with resources is we're actually burning burning the chairs there, there there's a bonfire going on outside and we're burning the chairs there's fewer and fewer of them but because the music's still playing we haven't recognized this yeah. You know, that's sort of my, that's how I kind of think about this. But when we do, it's like, oh my gosh, these claims that I have on these resources in the future are not going to, are not there. I mean, there's not enough resources. And so what's value, what value is this claim? Well, along those lines, I wonder about our faith in the renewable energy tech future. It seems to me that a lot of that is really misplaced. I mean, it's basically... The idea that we're going to run Disneyland, the interstate highway system, suburbia, and the U.S. military by other means. And I just don't see it. I don't think that's going to happen. No, you're right. And I go over that in the report. I refer basically to the Heinberg and Fridley book, Our Renewable Future, uh, which is cleverly titled, by the way, because it's basically saying – Look, our renewable future is not going to be uh, what you think. (laughs) We're going to have to get by with – like the big message is less, less – less everywhere you look. And so I basically take their their schema for why renewables aren't going to power the same kind of civilization we're accustomed to. And I say, this is what the implications are for running a farm and for the food system in general. It means a completely different way of getting our food. Uh, and that that's going to be pretty shocking. But it really is something that's that's percolates throughout society, because all society is industrialized, not just the food system. Can you uh, give us a a sense in some detail of how you assess the regional picture in the U.S. for a transition from where we're at now to what you call the great simplification? Uh, Surely some places are going to be more favorable than other places. I mean, I'm kind of familiar with this already, because I'm I'm familiar with climate change and 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 the biomes of the planet. I'm a biologist, but really there was a, a book by Charlie Hall and John Day that came out that I reference uh, I think pretty early on in the in the report that looks at the mega regions of of urban centers in the U.S. Right, and it then says, well, but where's biological productivity? Where's biocapacity? And how made that shift either degrade or or increase because of climate shifts that are projected. And it, it says, look, without extreme fossil energy, people are probably going to have to relocate away from places that are biologically impoverished 
towards places that have biological wealth and to rely on the, the flow of goods and services from ecosystems near where they are actually produced. And so to give you an idea, they basically say, we don't see how any large urban agglomeration holds together, no matter what region it's in. But some regions are really toast, and so the, the desert southwest isn't so hot. Uh, or actually, sorry, that's a bad, uh, it, it is, <laughs> bad metaphor. Sorry. Bad metaphor. You know, there's trouble in the south along coastlines because of sea level rise. Uh, I'd um, even argue that there's trouble in the south period because uh, even if we don't get a significant temperature rises from mm-hmm. the climate situation, the south is really uh, only what it has become because of air conditioning for everybody. If you yes, don't have air conditioning for everybody, you don't have that. Your Dixieland does not function pretty yeah. that well anymore. It becomes a backwater. Yeah, heat waves and all this stuff make work hard to do. It stresses out crops. So they kind of then map out, you know, there's there's sort of strips in the Pacific Northwest that are temperature-wise are decent and have enough water. Upper Midwest, again, it's not as hot as the south, enough water, good soils, uh, parts of the Northeast are decent. Again, it gets to this point of like, well, how does this shift occur? Like you say, it could be pretty, pretty awful. Um, but I write the report, and I th- I'm sure Charlie and and John wrote wrote their book to say, somebody start thinking about this because it's better to think ahead and it not have this be uh, complete chaos. Yeah, and, and by the way, for the benefit of listeners, Charlie Hall is considered sort of the dean of biophysical economics. Human history is is kind of a, a more of an emergent process than something planned or decreed by governments. And societies are kind of self-organizing, and uh, in, in the case we're talking about, self-reorganizing according to the circumstances of their time. How does that fit into your view, and and where do all our organizational structures fit into that idea? You know, something that is really scary right now is sort of the the decline of of institutional uh, trust and and capacity, and the the political divisions that we have in the country right now. Because remember, I said like we have to realize that we're so dependent on one another. I don't foresee with, you know, with, with lower energy to society, I, I see long-term the need for more regional governments. This doesn't unwind without kind of cooperation, doesn't unwind well <laughs> without cooperation at, at high levels of government. Mm-hmm. I don't know if high, you know, if national governments will secede, right, kind of their power without terrible, terrible fights. And, uh, so I don't know how this unwinds. I'm, I'm, it's one of the most frightening aspects to it because, you know, I think that there's a way to gracefully do this theoretically, but if we're going to keep our head in the sand and, and have these fantasies of techno utopia, then no, it, it's going to be like it's going to be more of a world made by hand scenario. Yeah, I, I wonder if you've uh, paid attention to the Edo period of Japanese history, which had quite a long run from about right. uh, the year 1600 to the mid-1800s, really, until Japanese society was forcibly opened by what's now called the West. It was a remarkable civilization of yeah. very highly intelligent, low-tech, and deep artistry in just about everything they did, from their technology was artistic and, and uh, you know their daily lives were full of art. 
It was also a city, uh, the city that would later be named Tokyo, had a population approaching a million and tremendous systems for managing waste and and bringing uh, resources into the city and out of the city, et cetera, et cetera. Have you studied that at all? Not in any detail. I mean, it's one of those examples that comes up now and then when I read a when I read a book looking at sort of this long history and questioning about how does how do societies you know live sustainably long term? It's the, it's one of the classic examples. And so yeah, I've read about it enough, but I, I, a few times. But I think that's what we need more of. I think we need people bringing up historic examples and saying, look, it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean the loss of culture or I mean, it means the loss of the current culture we've got. But it doesn't mean that people aren't cultured, that that people aren't doing really interesting, beautiful things. Yeah, it doesn't have um, to be Mad Max or Escape from New York, you know. It does, no, no. And a lot of times we, we sort of, you know, fantasize about these historic cultures, about how beautiful they were sure. and how interesting they were. And so we've got this we've got this weird relationship where we. We're kind of um, so in, enamored with high tech, and and yet you know these other cultures are and what they produce in terms of art and architecture and ways of life are really appealing and beautiful to us. This culture that we're talking about, the Edo culture of uh, Japan, was also deeply hierarchical, and that's mm-hmm. something that has become kind of uh, anathema to our current culture. We don't like authority, really. And, you know, we're trying to produce equal outcomes for everybody. I'm concerned that we're not properly prepared for the reestablishment of uh, social hierarchy, which will probably be necessary in the future. It's also something that uh, speaks to the current disintegration of authority. When you mentioned institutions a few minutes ago, the one word that was missing uh, between trust and, and the other one was was authority. And yeah. we have a tremendous failure of authority now in this country. Nobody believes anything from anybody. I think there's a, it's a matter of proportionality, okay? So right now, you know, a colleague of mine, Chuck Collins, looks at sort of wealth and inequality a lot. And the reason people, one of the reasons people are so upset is, of course, a huge amount of, of inequity has built up in the U.S. Now, and it just doesn't seem fair, right? Now, if, if there was a much lower society in terms of material wealth, you could still maintain the decent hierarchy, but the people that were poor at least had to see that those who are higher up in the hierarchy are competent and reasonably fair. And if you don't get that, if you feel like you're being you know, abused and oppressed, then think people are going to get upset. So because the, uh, this, the, this Japanese culture lasted for so long, there was probably a hierarchy that was that was okay from the perspective of perceptions of fairness and 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 competent and rulers had competency and trust. Uh, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, and I think that's what la- that's what's lacking now. It's and, way too skewed, and then there's lack of competence. Uh, and one of the implications of what we're talking about is, you know, when you go from uh, agribiz style industrial farming to much more distributed, smaller scale farming that require more human attention, you're really talking about a lot more people working on the land one way or another. And they're liable to uh, end up being the equivalent of what we used to call peasants. Yeah, oh, totally. And that I'm not sure that that's an idea that a lot of Americans now, you know, who are uh, shopping at the mall and going to Disney World would be down with. 
No, I know. It's interesting. We almost have, though, this, there's so many interesting subcultures in the U.S. And there's there's almost this culture of young people who want to live and work on farms, kind of like the Back to the Landers in the, in the 70s, right? They often are well-educated. I've met quite a few of them. They they have small, small farm businesses trying to produce high-value crops, obviously because they're living in these sort of rural areas without a lot of stores nearby, and they don't have high income. They're also living pretty lightly on the planet and doing something very useful. So you're sort of substituting materialism and, and wealth acquisition with kind of living a decent a decent life, doing something purposeful. Yeah, with a and lot so, of other satisfactions too, like you know the satisfaction yeah. of living living uh, meaningfully and close to nature all around you. Right. So I think that's what has allowed you know peasanthood to survive for so long and be actually something that people aren't aren't distressed about necessarily if they're a peasant, as long as they're not getting abused by you know agribusiness coming in and. Uh, taking their land or whatever, or uh, war, you know, war uh, soldiers running through and and stealing their food. And so, you know, but but again, like you're saying, we would much rather consider like the future of high wage manufacturing jobs in renewable energy rather than, okay, um, a decent life with uh, enough to get by um, by growing food. Yeah, one of the harder sell. <laughs> One of the ironic uh, things about this is that uh, in history, there were probably altogether fewer peasant rebellions than in rebellions of industrial workers once that got underway. Yeah, they're sold this life that is hard to hard to really um, give them. Yeah. Um, and also, they're often living in horrible conditions historically. Do you be an have- industrial worker in the, in the 1800s? Do you, do you have any sense of uh, what kind of losses will be entailed in the great simplification, especially uh, in terms of technological knowledge and practice? For, for instance, when the Romans left Britain, the native people of, the, of that island forgot how to make pottery for a few centuries wow. and, and stopped bathing and stopped doing all kinds of things that you know, are regarded as being pretty civilized. Oh, that is amazing. Yeah, no, you've heard of this where, you know, there's this like there's stories about the monks that save, you know, knowledge. And uh, and and yeah, I don't I don't know, of course. Um, On the one hand, boy, there's so much information out there and there's so much that's printed. But of course, it's on uh, acidic paper and it's on the Internet. That is really a tough question. I would think that it would be really wise to, to make sure there are certain key things that are that are preserved. And I think there are like these university groups now that are studying existential risk, and they're mostly looking at it from the perspective of, oh, what if a solar flare knocks out the grid on the planet? Or what if a supervolcano leads to a, a crash in crop production for several years and civilization unra- unravels? What do we need to preserve like these monks to uh, you know during some kind of dark ages? Uh, so people are starting to actually think like about this. Yeah, I find it laughable that so many people think that the internet is a is a sturdy and permanent part of the human condition. You know, they, it never seems to occur to them that the electricity could go out, maybe for quite a while. Oh, and when it does happen, when people lose their internet, they freak out. Right, <laughs> and, and systems right. crash. Totally. Yeah, they do. It's amazing the electricity 
demand on, from the internet is growing at such an incredible clip that they're you projected out ten years, and it's it's frightening. Yeah, especially if we keep on mining Bitcoin. <laughs> right, right, right. I'm a little curious about your your own personal journey because I noted in your bio at the uh, beginning of the book, or it's really a report, I guess, isn't it? In the form it's, of yeah, it's, it's a it's, short book. It's pretty long. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. But you spent a lot of time, a lot of years in academia, and uh, you know, you got your PhD and and just really put the time in, and then you got a university position, and then you bailed. Tell me what you saw going on in academia that uh, prompted you to to get out. There's no straight, simple answer to that. Like life is complex, and you weigh different things. I mean, part of it was is that I actually read the IPCC report in 2002, I believe, and I saw that there was a problem in that it was projecting unlimited economic growth and prosperity at the same time it was projecting. Of famine and uh, and drought and uh, <laughs> torrential rains and floods and uh, heat waves that would make uh, life untenable in certain regions, and I I started questioning that and I had a lot of blowback from academic colleagues, and then I had another colleague who said, "Oh, Jason, you're right," and he basically told me that when he was an undergrad at Dartmouth, he lived with Danella Meadows, who was a professor there. Oh yeah, she didn't she write. That great report from the 70s, what was it called? The Limits to Growth. Yeah, Limits right. to Growth. I'm sorry, I blanked on it. Yeah, that's okay, right. And so I actually had a friend who was the perfect you know, person to, to, to talk to about this because I was struggling. Like, what's wrong with me? Why does this just seem phony and, 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 and ridiculous? And he goes, oh, because it is. You're not the <laughs> one that's crazy. Okay. And so I kind of like said, screw this. Um, and my wife is a physician, so I married well enough that I didn't have to like suck it up and stay in academia. And um, I decided to learn how to farm and kind of do more community activism and education. And, and then that, that's how I switched. Tell us uh, what part of the country are you in? I live now in Corvallis, Oregon, in the Willamette Valley. So and- south, about an hour and a half south of Portland. The Willamette Valley is a famously fertile and, and productive part of the country. Small, but, yeah. but, but legendarily good. What are you living on and, in terms of land, and, and what are you doing with it? You know, I've got this uh, home site that's kind of, you know, homesteadish. I got, I've got some sheep uh, that are helping me um, uh, mow the lawn, uh, which is actually a native, a native uh, prairie mix that I put out here, and, you know, fighting weeds and... and working with the livestock a bit. We've got a nice vegetable garden. I'm trying to get some fruit trees established, managing kind of this, uh, some woodlot, you know, thinning out uh, dead trees and, and bramble. But then I'm also doing farming still. So um, manage some property and, and working with some people uh, as, as sort of farm managers and growing crops. Are you so, training farm managers, other people to do that? Uh, no, not so much right now. Um, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm in a little bit of a transition, but that's the kind of thing that would be really nice to do, right? To set up a system in a locale where you have kind of experienced people talking and teaching uh, younger farmers how to think about the farm as an ecosystem and the proper rotation and and all about the diversity of crops and livestock and the different soils and what are the opportunities and limitations of your place and how does it fit together? And so uh, I would love to do that more. And, and, and I'm interacting a bit with the university 
to do that, but uh, it's sort of, you know, it's emerging and, and developing. Yeah, uh, well, we're going to need that really badly, I think. Yeah. Well, Jason Bradford, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I wish you good luck out in Oregon and, and with the uh, Post Carbon Institute and the report that you just issued called The Future is Rural, which I think is quite important, and I hope it comes to the attention of the right people. Maybe we'll touch base again in the months ahead. So uh, let's just say we will ride again. All right. Great, Jim. Thanks for the conversation. It was wonderful. 